0: This is an AMI podcast. Hi, Dave Brown here. I'm the host of Now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio. We want to keep you in the now and in the know with information on news, politics, and technology, all curated and presented by members of the blind and partially sighted community, which of course includes me. So give Now with Dave Brown a listen wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jyotha Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Disabled people are often denied the right to make reproductive decisions, including decisions about fertility, contraception, pregnancy, childbirth, and parenting. In many countries, there are specific laws criminalizing sex with disabled people. There are also higher rates of sterilization and forced abortion amongst disabled women and girls than non-disabled women. Reproductive rights for disabled women is treated with suspicion and seldom spoken of. The discussions we do come across are often couched in medical terms. The voices of people with disabilities themselves are often missing from discussions around reproductive rights. It's urgent that people with disabilities, their families, and medical professionals come together to develop a conversation which puts the disability community at the center. Today, we discuss disability and reproductive rights. It's time to put your finger on The Pulse. Hello, and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm very excited to be with you today. My name is Javitha Gupta. I'm the host of the program, and we've got a very exciting show lined up for you. It's always a pleasure for me when we have guests from overseas. Uh, if you might remember Stefano Sprully, we had that great conversation about some of his photography uh, in the past. We've gone as far as India. And today we're off to Ireland, where I'm joined by Anya Spurrin, who is a researcher and a member of the Real Productive Justice Project and uh, Anya's joining me from Ireland to talk a little bit more about the project and some of their goals and objectives. Anya, welcome to The Pulse. It's great that you could make some time to speak with us.
1: Oh thanks so much for having us on. I think we were a wee bit shocked to hear that the project had reached all the way in Canada but uh, we're delighted that um, there's interest across the water as well in our project.
0: Oh, believe me, you have, that is not a surprise at all. I spend a lot of time on Twitter and you just have to look at, in all the right places. Um, but I was intrigued by the project because I'm not sure I've heard of anything similar in Canada, which is why I wanted to speak to you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the Real Productive Justice Project. And the way you write Real Productive is really interesting as well. It's R-E and then A-L is in brackets and then Productive Justice Project. So uh, just tell us about how it all got started.
1: Yes, I suppose even just from the title, like it's reproductive justice, but we want to make it real. Um, So it was Mm -hmm. a clever combining of that. Um, I think in Ireland, disabled people's rights probably like everywhere in the world Um, the focus has been on independent living and kind of civil political rights and maybe housing and stuff and people's uh, like identities as parents um, or actively deciding not to become parents has been kind of pushed to the wayside Uh, I know in Ireland we had the recent referendum um, to repeal the eighth amendment which prohibited abortion like in most circumstances Mm -hmm. and so we repealed that And, you know, there was was a very contentious issue. Uh, There was major campaigns Mm -hmm. on on both sides of the arguments and the voices of disabled people just weren't really, you know, visible. The the experiences, loads of people were coming forward and telling their stories, but we just weren't hearing it from disabled people. Um, So that kind of Mm -hmm. prompted a lot of thought, I suppose, then about not just disabled people and abortion, but all aspects of deciding whether to become a parent or not. And then if you do become a parent, are you actually given supports and scope to, to parent the children that you do have?
0: Mm-hmm. But also in my own experience, you know, getting access to birth control was a big issue. I remember going to all kinds of hoops to be able to access birth control as a young, sexually active woman. You wouldn't think it was such a hoopla, but it was. Uh, but tell me a little bit about your role in the project. Uh, what is it that you're specifically doing and who else are you working with?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're a four-woman team. Um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher and I look after um, the legal and policy analysis as well as talking to key informants. So these are professionals in the legal, medical and social work sectors and just speaking to them about their own experiences of providing services or supporting disabled people on anything from fertility and contraception, abortion, pregnancy and childbirth, all the way through to parenting. Um, So that's my wee part of the the project. Um, My colleague then, Jenny Dagg, she collects oral histories from disabled people themselves about their experiences. Again, anything from fertility all the way through to parenting. Some people mm-hmm. might have you know just one specific topic that they can talk about or we often find that once people get talking their story spans many of them because you know you have to sit down you might have a wee think about whether you want to have a kid and how many of them and how you control your fertility before during and after having children and um, mm-hmm. then there's my colleague uh, Maria Niflaherde and she's working on toolkits so one of the outputs that we're hoping the project will have will be, you know, a resource for professionals to be able to provide better services to disabled people based on our learning from people's Mm -hmm. lived experiences. And kind of, I suppose the the most important person in the project is our principal investigator, Professor Eleanor Flynn, and uh, she's the the director of the Centre for Disability Law and Policy at NUI Galway, where we're all based. So we're Mm -hmm. we're an awesome four-woman team.
0: It sounds like it. I mean, it kind of makes me jealous that I'm not a fly on the wall for some of your conversations just to hear what you're hearing from people. But you had me at law and policy. I am so curious about what the law and policy environment is like for people with disabilities when it comes to reproductive rights. Of course, you're familiar with Ireland. So tell us about that. But also, if you have examples internationally about how people with disabilities get treated, I would love to know.
1: Um, I suppose, yeah, we, we do kind of uh, peer, like on each topic, we do background papers. So, our first overview is always the UN CRPD, that's our starting point. Um, so, mm-hmm. taking that law, uh, you've got, you know, everything really in the CRPD is relevant to people making decisions about their reproductive lives from access to health care. Uh, being like access to information about fertility and contraception, non-discrimination and equality in accessing any services, um, and yeah, the, the right to privacy, family and home life. So that there's loads of UNCRPD rights that get triggered. Um, And then we kind of move to uh, to look at European laws then, because we are based we have the the benefit of the European Court of Human Rights. So we look at a good bit of Mm -hmm. case law around that. And the most case law we find has been around parenting and um, where people either because they've received a diagnosis of disability, and are also a parent have been discriminated against so sort of automatic assumptions like because you have a diagnosis you can't parent and um, there's also mm-hmm. issues where there's been a failure by state services to put in adequate resources to enable someone to parent properly so not having the tools that you need not being able to access them which otherwise you'd be able to parent fairly uh, easily and um, mm-hmm there's sort of elements of uh, parents with disabilities being overly scrutinized by state services then you know Mm -hmm. you know to a much greater extent than non-disabled parents would and I'm sure parents would find that especially if you're a new parent it's really daunting and you're afraid of making mistakes but then having all these eyes judging and the risk of you know they might take my child away from me makes things much more difficult and then we're also seeing at the Yeah, at the European court cases, there's also just loads of uh, compounding socioeconomic factors. So, you know, low levels of education, poverty, um, lack of employment, um, lack of kind of family assistance or informal supports. Um, They're kind of the the main issues coming out of the the European legal cases. Um, Mm -hmm. And then in Ireland, I'd love to say we have one specific law relating to disabled people and it makes everything okay, Uh, but it's definitely not. So we've really been looking Mm -hmm. at the the laws that apply to all of the population. and again because it's across fertility contraception pregnancy childbirth abortion and parenting there, there's a huge amount of like generic laws and um, and definitely not so much indication that there is a consideration of the needs of disabled people within that mm-hmm. and they were sort of written without the the thought that disabled people would be parents and would need extra in both supports or mm-hmm. you know more accessible services and stuff um
0: It almost prompts me to ask you about the oral history component of your project, because that is what is so intriguing to me. Uh, As I said off the top of this program, you know, we don't feel, I don't feel like the voices of people with disabilities are ever duly considered in conversations about reproductive health or reproductive rights. Um, And it would be so intriguing to hear what people with disabilities have been telling the four of you. What do those first-hand accounts go on to tell you?
1: They're extremely informative and it's definitely nothing that a lot of the time things that we, we wouldn't even have considered um, going into it. So issues of sterilization. Um, so I know there's a lot of concern mm. in international law and policy around forced sterilization of disabled people and you shouldn't be sterilized without your consent, which is 100% correct. But there's mm. been real difficulties um, from people who have actively sought sterilization have and have been denied it and the impact mm. that has had on their lives not being able to engage fully in relationships out of fear of becoming pregnant, and they were so you know decided against becoming pregnant, um, and just that lack of health care that was there. Um, I suppose we're hearing very little on abortion from the, the oral histories. We've still got a while to collect stories though, so hopefully. Um, and then things around parenting, the parenting stories are, are what we're hearing the most done, mm-hmm. and very similar to what the European court cases were were kind of flagging. The excess scrutiny um, from your, you know, you announced that you're pregnant, the the shocked reactions uh, from friends mm-hmm. and families, like sort of, why would you be having a child now? Like, do you not have enough? to be getting on with essentially. Um, mm-hmm. Is there not enough sort of stress in your life? Yeah, and then like from nurses and did the practical physical infrastructure of things being inaccessible. So if you're trying to get uh, infertility treatment, if you're actively trying to have a child using IVF or surrogacy, mm-hmm. um, that going to those clinics is very inaccessible. And sometimes the attitudes of the staff, um, especially in Ireland, it's so unregulated at the minute, assisted human reproduction. Um, Mm -hmm. and there are elements in proposed legislation that could let or facilitate a service to discriminate against a potential client based on their disability and it would be because of the sort of the best interests of a future child if it may have a similar disability to a parent or Mm -hmm. if the, the the fertility clinic themselves could decide because you're a disabled person you're not going to be able to parent this child correctly so we will not assist you in becoming pregnant in the first place and um, so there's been some really eye-opening stories like that um, and then yeah I suppose just from social services perspectives mm-hmm. um, where people may be having multiple children or um, sorry <laughs> excuse me um. Yeah, just I suppose the, the lack of awareness from social workers, social supports and statutory services about, you know, if the proper resources and supports are put in place, that people can parent or they might need a wee bit mm-hmm. more support than non-disabled parents. But, you mm-hmm. know, that doesn't mean you out and out can't parent. Um, so there's been a lot of stories where like we've heard them, we've been like, this could be so easily rectified if there was just, you know, a change in perspective and attitude and proper resource allocation.
0: My name is Javitha Gupta, and with me is Anya Sperren from The Real Productive Justice Project, based out of Ireland. Anya, when we were talking about some of the issues you were hearing from people with disabilities, uh, the excessive scrutiny of parents with disabilities came up quite often in the last half of our conversation. Um, One of the things that I've read about, you know, especially as we we look at divorce proceedings, is this idea in the court around the best interest of the child. It's really gained traction in the last 20, 30 years in determining who gets custody of a child after divorce. Uh, And yet this notion of the best interest of the child has subjected parents with disabilities to undue scrutiny. Is it time that we... Reevaluate some of the, the, the assumptions that underlie this notion of what, can, is, what would constitute the best interest of the child.
1: Uh, absolutely in ireland like there's a lot of evidence to show that particularly for parents with intellectual disabilities that there's much greater interventions by social services and uh, like court cases for for child removal um, for for parents with intellectual disabilities like extremely disproportionate to the, the general population um, and it it is it's uh, yeah it, i think it's about resource allocation and knowledge and awareness among you know whatever state agencies and whether it's family support workers um and those sorts of supports <clears throat> uh, just that they have an awareness and a respect and an understanding that disabled people you know have the same rights as non-disabled people in mm-hmm. relation to parenting that just because you have a diagnosis or you present in a certain way um <clears throat> doesn't mean that Um, you know your your child is at risk or is you know potentially going to be less cared for and that there needs to be resources put into place and some of our oral histories and speaking to key informants there's been examples of well we've given loads of supports but they haven't been the right supports they've been Mm. you know the tick box exercises of we need to prove that we've done this done that you know we've brought people to school we've we've had so many meetings with them and there's been no change but if, if that's not the right support it's not going to work for that family mm-hmm. um, and I've had a, a, so many key informants who are lawyers and um, mm-hmm. solicitors here in Ireland involved in these cases and one of the most striking quotes that stays with me is there is no winners and losers in this mm-hmm. type of law like it, it's uh, I'll try and get the quote now it's um, it's all about mitigating tragedy and um, mm-hmm. so it's like once you get like to a stage of legal intervention nobody's winning um, even the the state services aren't winning either because you know um they've already put in so many resources and it hasn't worked mm-hmm. and it is it, because of this lack of understanding um of, of giving people supports that um, mm-hmm. i suppose it, it fails everybody children's and parents and state services
0: yeah, I think what maybe fundamentally needs to change is this idea that just because you're a parent with a disability doesn't automatically equate with being a bad parent. You know, you just need to put the supports in place so that it's like anything else, whether it's education or work. Um, not to sort of oversimplify parenting in any way, but if you put the right supports in place, people with dis- with disabilities will succeed. Uh, you know, there was something you said earlier, that there is a lot of concern, as there should be, about forced sterilization of women with disabilities, and I don't know if you read about. About, um the case, I believe it was in Virginia, Buck versus Bell, where the judge famously noted in ordering the sterilization of the of this disabled woman with an intellectual disability that they'd had three generations of imbeciles, and that was quite enough. Um, so we are so familiar with this idea that women with disabilities are often sterilized against their will. Um, so I was surprised to hear that that. Um, st- forms of ster- uh, that sterilization, when people sought that out voluntarily as an option, was being denied to them. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I think that might be uniquely in Ireland as well that we have had such an obsession about women's bodies being, mm-hmm. you know, vessels for for humans, and um, that we are so slow. Even for non-disabled people, it's it's not easy to access sterilization, and um, you know, definitely if if you're within childbearing ages, there is a real um reluctance to you know do anything so drastic and maybe this could be positive as well that you'd be advised about options about long-term contraception instead of you know such a an irreversible measure measure a sterilization Mm -hmm. um so doctors again having that knowledge and awareness that uh, you know not jumping to sterilization straight away but still respecting people's concerns about really not wanting to become a parent um uh, but you know if it's a medical decision that people would be given all the information that they need
0: and what about the people that you spoke with when you were gathering these oral histories or even with some of the other stakeholders that you spoke with the lawyers and the medical practitioners what's the general sense do people with disabilities in ireland want to become parents or is it something that they best want to avoid
1: oh I. I <laughs> that's a good question do they want to <laughs> um i think that that'd be yeah broadly the same as the general population there's people who do people mm-hmm. who don't people who are fairly ambivalent and it happens for them or you know you meet the right person you want it under certain circumstances um i know there's a few people we've spoken to who've uh, actively sought to become single mothers themselves and have sought you know surrogacy or, or different um sorry not surrogacy IVF surrogacy is very difficult in Ireland. Mm-hmm. um more kind of IVF and fertility treatments and um, so that that's been great to see um mm-hmm. but I, I don't know if uh, from the key informants from the professional side of it I suppose when they're getting involved it, it's usually because something's gone wrong um, mm-hmm. so it's always very sort of sad circumstances or there has to be serious interventions put in place and it's a very high stress time and um, so it, it isn't the happy family picture that um, you know everyone likes to have in their head of what it'll be like for them. Yeah, yeah. Speaking
0: of the happy family picture, um, when I think about a lot of the parents with disabilities that I know, and mine, this is just anecdotal, but I feel that you know it is often a heterosexual couple, married in a long-term relationship, even, um, and then they're bringing children into a situation that, in many other societal respects, would be quite ideal. Um, Do you hear a lot from people within the disability community, women who are wanting to be single mothers maybe and they don't have a man in their life or even a a homosexual couple, maybe two women who want to adopt a a, a child or use assisted reproduction to have a child? How prominent are those stories in our public discourse?
1: In relation to disabled people who are also LGBT? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't been hearing much of that, and it has been sort of a, an effort that we've consciously tried to make in the project, like we are seeking those stories still. Um, and when I, I do, it's one of my questions that I ask my key informants, like how does intersectional identity um, impact on how you do your work with disabled parents or you know, people who are deciding about becoming parents? Um, and it's, it's not, you know, very common yet. Yeah, like we haven't been hearing those stories very much.
0: No, so I'm glad it's not just me. I thought maybe it was just a lack of me being, and maybe it was just me being unobservant. But, you know, one of the things I was following in the news uh, was the the referendum about abortion. And I wonder to what extent, uh, in terms of the oral histories and the people that you spoke to, to what extent uh, people's religious beliefs may have uh, been a factor. Uh, even if they are you know, people with disabilities, to what extent might their religious beliefs have been a factor in uh, choices around abortion, choices around contraception and fertility, choices around whether to even parent and to how many children they wanted to parent? Uh, did religion come up at all?
1: It has been like, and again, because the people that I'm speaking with the most is the key informants. And um, there would yeah. have been like nods to, oh, well, you know, back in the day. Um, and if people had been working, you know, over 30 or 40 years, um, a lot of our disability services were run and continue to be affiliated with religious institutions. So they have mm-hmm. names like saint and, you know, um, different um, things like that. And um, so there has been some remarks made about if an organization has a catholic ethos that they can't outwardly provide contraception to residents who have disabilities or that Mm -hmm. you know staff members you know would be allowed to use conscientious objection to not support someone to realize an abortion or to access contraception or to even talk to them about it um i suppose like in terms of the general population absolutely like the religious ethos would have been you know Something that people did question a lot, and it was very a public mm-hmm. uh, kind of discussion that was had about it. And I'm sure it wasn't just my family table. There was lots of, you know, tables and couches where where hard conversations were had at the time, um, and mm-hmm. probably could continue to be had. Um, I'm not sure if that's answering your question though. And...
0: It it is, and you know, these are things that that are difficult to answer as well because, um, you know, so much of this is just what goes on in people's heads and a subjective experience. Um, tell me a little bit about the toolkit you mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation that what you were hoping to create at least one of your colleagues was heading up the effort to create a toolkit describe the toolkit to us what are you hoping that will look like um, and who is it meant for
1: well um, our concept of the toolkit has changed greatly from when we started as we have started speaking to professionals and as we've kind of put Professionals in the room with people with lived experiences. So, I'll tell you really briefly about our discussion fora. Um, mm-hmm. So, we have four of them across the project. We've completed three already on each of mm-hmm. our topics. So, our first one um, was on parenting. Um, Sorry, no, the first one was on pregnancy and childbirth and we had that in September, 2019. And we were so fortunate, we were able to have that in person in a room. And for the fora, we invite people with lived experiences off that specific topic, and then people working in the legal, social and med- medical um, sectors to you know just exchange their views come into the one room it's a very respectful space um, and just you know for professionals mostly the idea is that they are exposed to people's experiences that they can know okay maybe i didn't you know behave inappropriately towards a disabled person or discriminate or deny a service but it has happened you know to the to people um by colleagues or you know the, the the wider sector um, so they've been really impactful. And as we've had them, we've had the one on pregnancy and childbirth parenting and last Friday we had one on um, fertility and contraception. And they've been really good, like positive exchanges. We've had some professionals want to link in directly with a disabled person and say, look, advise me come to my place of work. How can I change you know, the physical layout of my service or, or my approach or what tools I use? Um, so based on those discussion fora, we've kind of had to, to rethink the toolkits about how they could best serve professionals. Um, we, we know we're not going to be able to solve a problem. It's not going to be if someone presents with a certain type of a disability, you do A, B and C. Um, it'll be mostly about raising awareness of what the Irish law and policy is and the international best like standards, again, from the UNCRPD. Um, and then we'll definitely be trying to think of ways of incorporating the oral history, so maybe case studies or vignettes, these things, Mm because when you have sort of a a study or, you know, a story in your mind, storytelling is extremely powerful around these issues. And So if if people can remember a story and be told how someone felt receiving a bad service or a good service, uh, we're hoping that will be useful.
0: I think that's going to make a huge impact. Um, I know that I'm very interested in reading all the reports and looking at the toolkit when that's available. What's the best way to keep uh, track of your work? Um, Do we follow you on social media? Is there a website that
1: we can go to? Yes, all of the above. So we're on Twitter, um, on at CDLP Justice. We have a Facebook page with the big long title, Real Productive Justice. Um, uh, And we also have a webpage ourselves, which is www.realproductivejustice.com. Uh, dot com uh or if you go onto the nui galway center for disability law and policy website as well there's links through that so there, there's loads of ways to to find us well i'm glad i was
0: able to find you uh coincidentally on twitter it's been really great talking to you anya thank okay. you very much
1: well thanks maine for having me on and irish people have a very far reach so if anyone does know anybody at home and they think they might have an oral history or a key informant please do encourage them to get in touch with us
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much. That was Anya Spurran from Real Productive Justice Project, and we spoke to Anya from Ireland. That was a really uh, thought-provoking conversation. I'm sort of puzzling, not puzzling maybe, but I'm certainly sort of rethinking a lot of of that conversation and it's one that I think I'm probably going to go back and have a listen to myself even though I did the interview so if there's parts of that conversation that you'd like to revisit you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. the podcast goes up pretty much the same time as the show goes to air Um, I'd like to thank Anya Sparron for being my guest on the program I also want to remind you about ami.ca forward slash on the pulse that's the show blog and we will put some links and resources on there you'll also get some additional thoughts from me once I've had a chance to listen to the show all over again and think about um, the many and interesting facets to this conversation about reproductive rights for people with disabilities. The technical producer for The Pulse is Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Paula Dineen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and I hope that you will give us your feedback. You can find us on Twitter at AMI-audio and use the hashtag Pulse AMI. And if you'd like to look me up on Twitter, I'm at Joita Gupta. Thanks a For listening, stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.